SB Nation and Underdog Dynasty present the Underdog Podcast. Welcome to another edition of the CUSA Underdog Podcast on UnderdogDynasty.com, SB Nation's home for G5 football. Uh, Joe Lundergan, Eric Henry here with you once again. It is mid-July. We are like six weeks, if that, away from the start of training camp for all of college football and the start of a new season, uh, getting extremely excited for it. Uh, Eric, man, last episode got a little saucy. I'm surprised they're letting us do another one. <laughs> so, uh, but, uh, what have you been up to since man? Yeah, man, I have just been gearing up for another season. I know the fact that, as you mentioned, it is mid-July. I am fired up, man. It just feels like, especially with the way last year was and so much uncertainty entering the year, it's just nice to kind of have a return to normalcy. And I'm looking forward to getting out there back at a FIU, Panther Pride Lands, as they're affectionately known to Panther Nation and uh, covering a couple practices, catching up with Butch Davis and company. But yeah, man, fired up, definitely ready to... uh Jump into a few more news and notes here in the offseason, and we are right around the corner from football season, fall camp. I know. I'm excited to get out there and, and socialize, and now that you know I'm vaccinated, things seem to be trending in the right direction, knock on wood. Uh, excited about that. But in my you know post-vaccination socialization, can I share a uh, party tip that I've learned with you, Eric, so far? Listen, any party tip you have is going to be interested, or anyone has for that matter, but especially you. Sure. And this this might come in handy for the Florida folks as well, our, our younger folks in Florida. The tip is this, Rat Pack, the music group. Like, if you're at a party and things get rowdy, make sure that you're playing Rat Pack music. Because, like, if you like, – if your nosy neighbors look over the wall and you're – you know, making too much noise or whatever, and they look over and they just hear Rat Pack music, they're just going to think, oh, what a what a bunch of nice young people. Like, because we had that situation not too long ago at a party I was at. Like, it was getting crazy, but we were, like, you know, whoever's house it was was just really into, you know, Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin and all that. But I was like, you know what? I think as long as we have this music playing, the, like, octogenarian neighbors are going to be fine with it. Like... <laughs> It's it's a cheat code. It's a life cheat code. The last party, I'll say it's a gathering. You know, those of us in our late 20s, I don't know if we're necessarily at so many house parties, but, you know, you never know. Um, the last gathering I was at, uh, it was a friend's kind of impromptu bachelor party, we'll call it, because he was having his first kid. And uh, there was some uh, crime mob, um, kind of mid to late 2000s atlanta crunk you know little john Eastside boys so this is one of those things where it inadvertently ends up being the uh, clash of cultures here between myself and joe Lonergan. so <laughs> we will invest in a little rat pack music from time to time to dissuade the neighbors from calling the cops <laughs> it's like when you watch the cartoons and like you have like the like uh what do you call like the trick book that you pull down and the like the secret lab swings around that's what like that's what I feel like the music is for a party. Like as long as you have like music that melds with whatever the outside listener thinks like should be going on, they don't actually think twice about it. (laughs) Before we start the episode, I will say this Uh, in terms of music that seemingly cuts across, you know, all races and genders and everyone else uh, West coast, little, you know, G funk Snoop Dre, you know, I I feel like that early nineties West coast vibe, like, 
the amount of people who are rocking with, you know, West Coast hip hop that you'd be surprised that are like dads now and cops and, you know, it, it's, it's cross-cultural. Completely agree. I was, I was playing golf in Irvine, California, like eight months ago, and they had those golf carts with like the Bluetooth speakers on them. And it was nothing but you know, like death row, basically. It was, <laughs> it was wild. But, you know, music aside, uh, we should probably dive into, like you mentioned, some news about the FIU Panthers and everything that they uh, have been focused on the last uh, few months, uh, starting with a change in the coaching staff. Uh, receivers coach DJ McCarthy, no longer with the program. Uh, Eric, I understand you reached out to them to try to see uh, what the situation there is. They declined comment. So how does this kind of change what they need to do going forward? Yeah, so it's kind of an interesting situation, right? When DJ came on, you may remember, listeners may remember, that the late Aubrey Hill, the former FIU receivers coach who tragically passed away due to cancer, um, when Coach McCarthy came on, it was you know it, it was a situation where didn't know whether Coach Hill was going to be able to return for the season or what his situation would be. And obviously, as I mentioned, he tragically passed away. So it was kind of having DJ on there, you know, in case you wouldn't have Coach Hill. Obviously, they did not. Um, but yeah, it just seems like, you know, the situation where I don't, I don't know, again, they declined comment, but it seems, you know, from Butch Davis' side of things, maybe this was a short-term hire given the health situation of Coach Hill. And, you know, now it, it's just really interesting, Joe, because DJ has a solid reputation. He was we were wide receivers coach at Nevada, LSU, UCF, various places. Um, this coach really uh, impressive for receivers. I mean, Brandon Flowers, Brandon Flowers, Brandon Marshall, Nitron Flowers, uh, a lot of guys, Mike Sims Walker guys is put in the NFL. So, you know, next time we uh, have a chance, next time I have a chance to talk to Butch Davis when they open up fall camp, we'll ask about DJ. But uh, to spin it forward, it appears as if offensive corner Andrew Briner may make the move to receivers coach. That's not uh, for certain yet, but there's an opening for, you know, either receivers coach or running backs coach. Right now, uh, Briner's coaching the the running backs and being the offensive coordinator. So there'll be an opening there somewhere and, you know, they'll kind of pick your, uh, how they choose to fill the, the void. Yeah. And, you know, I can see that anytime you have any kind of um, transition on the coaching staff, it, it takes a second to get used to, but um, obviously kind of some added intrigue with the uh, receiver coach situation from last season that you mentioned um, staying in the uh, pass catching realm for the Panthers, uh, former FIU tight end, Evan Thomas. Uh, he entered the transfer portal a little while back, uh, played in 11 games as a true freshman for the Panthers back in 2018. However, he is now a member of Louisiana tech and uh, couldn't help but notice he quote tweeted your uh, tweet kind of announcing that move with now I want revenge with a little, with a little devil emoji. Um, so maybe a little bit of bad blood there. That's a very interesting situation, Joe. Ivan Thomas, a hometown kid, Miami Palmetto high three-star recruit, you know, really talented prospect coming into FIU. And he played instantly as a true freshman. He kind of served as that backup behind Sterling Palmer kind of serves that H back slash tight end in 2019 really playing time has kind of disappeared. You know, David O'Mara came in, Camarion Williams came in, and Ivan Thomas hit the transfer portal, if memory serves me correct, about four or five games into the year, um, went to Independence Community College, which I believe is last chance you, if memory serves me correct. Um, he was at uh, JUCO in Kansas, I believe it was Independence, but very quickly, Joe, became one of the top JUCO Titans in the nation, and now has landed back in Conference USA with Louisiana Tech. So I, I think it's definitely interesting. Yes, you noted Ivan's comment. Ivan's comment. Excuse me. Now I want revenge. So 
it is interesting. And guess what? He is not the only former Panther who landed in Conference USA, as I'm sure you will note with the next player I'm assuming you're going to talk about. Yeah, Eric, another uh, FIU transfer within the conference to kind of pay attention to here. Offensive lineman John Bolding is now at Southern Miss. He was a uh, FIU redshirt in uh, 2018, but now kind of joins a Southern Miss team that uh, seemingly on the rise, especially on the offensive side of the ball. Yeah, as I mentioned, another former FIU Panther takes the, the Juco route. John Bolding III, actually they, the brother of former FIU defensive tackle Talent Humphrey. Remember, Talent Humphrey was one of the larger recruits in the history of not only FIU, but Conference USA. He is a former four-star recruit, the, statistically the highest rated ever signee in the 247 era with FIU, and his brother came along with him. His brother, John, was a three-star prospect as a guard. Redshirt in 2018, didn't see any time, but when Talon left the program, of course, John left as well. So he reemerges in CUSA. He has not put out a tweet about wanting revenge, but he uh, he will take on his former team. While Ivan Thomas will not this year, he will take on his former team in the last ball game of the 2021 season in Hattiesburg. So uh, good to see him back in CUSA, and we'll see what happens. Yeah, it seems like there's uh, a few more offensive transfers into CUSA that are going to really make waves uh, this season on top of the ones that we've already talked about. We'll jump back into those in a second. Uh, first, let's talk about some defensive transfers that CUSA is getting. Uh, first with North Texas, uh, UNLV defensive back Greg Francis uh, transferring into Seth Luttrell's program. He's a Las Vegas native, so interesting that things didn't work out with his hometown team, uh, but he's six foot two. 195-pound guy out of Bishop Gorman, which, if you're not familiar, really successful program there in Las Vegas um, and was a, a starter in 2019 for UNLV. It was a former three-star prospect, um, solid tackler, but really didn't get to get too many chances to shine in 2020 since, uh, of course, he opted out. So that's going to happen. Um, but we've talked ad nauseum about how UNT really needs some defensive help here. So the question is, is this guy the piece that they need to improve in that department? I think he is a piece. I honestly know if he is the piece. And I think first off, you know, great job uh, knowing your high school football there, as far as knowing Bishop Gorman, very much a powerhouse in all of the nation. So to come from that type of program, as you mentioned, didn't necessarily work out with his hometown team, but here's the thing. You do not want your safeties making too many tackles in the defensive secondary. And that was a thing for North Texas last year, the past two years. And it's kind of surprising because they have Dion Noville, who was one of the top uh, defensive players all of Conference USA. So the fact that, you know, the run defense has kind of been an issue there with North Texas is something that's interesting. But I think Greg France is going to come in there and, and make a difference. You know, we talk about guys like you know, Michael Sanders had 68 tackles last year and from uh, his safety spot. So you want to bring those numbers down. But here's the thing. They just need talent overall. You know, as many talented players in that scheme as possible and figure it out. Uh, as we've mentioned on previous podcasts, you know, with uh, Brett Vito, they got to get the amount of points they're allowing down. So I think Francis will help in those efforts. Hopefully so. It's interesting. You know, we there plenty of kids have come out of the uh, – Bishop Gorman program and had success at the college level. Um, but based on what I've seen in like just documentaries about high school football and stuff like that, they have more flash than like any other high school program that I've seen. Like their facilities are insane. So it's really no wonder that they're producing guys, you know, like this who are vying for, for spots on D1 teams on, on such a consistent basis. 
Joe, we could do an entire podcast and anybody who's watched QB one knows, you know, Tate Martell. And that probably was the deepest look into that Gorman program. And just the fact that they play teams from across the nation and, and, you know, they are a, a private Catholic school. So of course that helps, but anyone who is not familiar, Google Bishop Gorman high school football stadium. It is better than, I hope it doesn't get me in trouble. At least half of the stadiums in conference USA to say the least. So, I mean, it, it, Joe, if you remember this, it actually kind of resembles, um, and I'm going to mispronounce the name, I always say Joe Alley. I think it's Joe Alley Stadium in, in Ruston. I, the, the tech folks, please, you know, hop in my DMs and, and get on my pronunciation there. Uh, I know I got on Joe's chops the other week. But it, it reminds me of the same layout where their weight room actually faces the, the field. So, I mean, for that in high school, you know, that's something that you expect in college to kind of have the weight room right there. You're looking out into the stadium, but their whole athletic training facility is right there facing the field. So it's a, yeah, very much a um, premier athletic facility there in Vegas. Yeah, I'm surprised we don't see uh, more of those schools in Vegas, just kind of given the, uh, you know, average income and whatnot of that place. But that's, you know, that's an economic selection we don't have to get into right now. Uh, let's dive back into some transfers that are coming into CUSA um, on the offensive side of the ball, Louisiana Tech. Uh, getting more interesting in the running back room as well as the quarterback room uh, on the running back side of things. Uh, Vanderbilt transfer running back Keon Henry Brooks is going to join the team. There uh, averaged 125 total yards per game in 2020 and uh, was the only running back in the SEC with two games of 80 plus receiving yards from the running back position. So, you know, on its own, I feel like you would be excited about this addition if you're a tech fan, but here's the thing. They already have Marcus Williams coming in from uh, App State. Now, granted, Williams is more of like a downhill guy, and this edition seems to be more of like a pass catcher. So it seems like they can coexist, but I don't know that's ne what necessarily anybody wants if you're at least a running – if you're you – no, know, I don't know that this is really something that either of these guys want to have to split time with somebody who's just as good, especially if they're trying to build a draft resume. Yeah, I think that's the interesting observation there, right? Now, obviously, Keon uh, Brooks coming in here is uh, was a sophomore last year, so he'll retain that eligibility, has a few more years left, as opposed to Marcus Williams Jr. But I think that's interesting because Williams Jr. had split so much of his time, his entire tenure in, in college, as a second or third back at App State in a program that uses multiple backs, right? So you think he's coming in, he's going to be the number one guy, and there's no reason to think he may not be still, but when you add in Brooks... I think it'll work. As you mentioned, Brooks is definitely a all-purpose versatile back. And if you're a Skip Holtz and if you're a Tech fan, I think this is a great thing because you kind of get that combo of Izzy Tucker, Justin Henderson. Maybe not Justin Henderson from last year, but Justin Henderson from 2019 in combination with Izzy Tucker. So you kind of get that, you know, um, uh, was that a thunder and lightning type of combination there, you know, if you're uh, talking about your back. So uh, good pickup for Tech. And um, I think it'll work out in the end, as I mentioned, because Brooks has more eligibility left as opposed to Williams Jr., who is really kind of on his last stand here after uh, putting five years at, or I believe oh, four years at App State. Yeah, so interested to see how that situation is going to continue to develop and who's going to kind of emerge as, you know, the first and second down back as opposed to the third down back, um, given the kind of talent that they now have in that running back room. Um, in the quarterback room as well, things are getting interesting. The Bulldogs also got a transfer from West Virginia in quarterback Austin Kendall. Uh, he joins Luke Anthony, last year's starter, who, of course, is still recovering from a pretty serious leg injury, but has, you know, by the time the season rolls around, will have had time to heal. So, uh, uh, 
Kendall, a 6'3", 220-pound guy, started nine games in 2019 uh, for West Virginia, threw for almost 2,000 yards and 12 touchdowns, um, and they were 5-7 uh, and seven that year. So, I mean, we've seen West Virginia throw the ball a lot, so you have to be a halfway competent passer if you're going to fit into that system even remotely. So, um, Smoke Harris and those guys should have a, a decent – pass thrower to connect with in this regard um but i mean you know I, I you have to think a lot of the tech faithful kind of wanted luke anthony to kind of make that triumphant comeback based on what he kind of went through last year but this is a pretty damn good insurance policy listen it's a damn good insurance policy and listen it might even be a starter when you take a look at it his resume first time west virginia 2019 he started nine ball games he was a pretty efficient passer uh, do for just a shade over 1,900 yards in those starts, and I believe was fourth in the Big 12, if memory serves me correct, in passing yards that season. Um, or maybe it's passing efficiency because 1,900 seems a little, little light for the fourth in uh, passing yards. But nevertheless, when you look at the totality of things, Joe, this is where I think it gets interesting. Aaron Allen was the backup to Jamar Smith. Split time last year with Luke Anthony. Luke Anthony has is the more veteran quarterback of all of these guys because of his time at the FCS level was a two-year starter at the FCS level. But then you bring in Austin Kendall, who has a year of starting experience. And you kind of just wonder there, you know, can you couple his starting experience with his former four-star potential coming out of high school? And does that make him a viable option as the starter? Or as you mentioned, is this just, you know, not just in quotes, an insurance policy in case Luke Anthony is kind of struggling to recover from that injury? We'll see what happens, but I just think it makes for a crowded quarterback room. Not necessarily saying it's a bad thing because you can't have enough talent to quarterback position in my mind. And I don't think that they're going to play multiple quarterbacks again in 2021, but it's, it's going to be interesting. So I'm looking forward to seeing how things shape up out there in wrestling. Absolutely. And I mean, I, I feel like I've said this again for as many times as we see in college football, these teams load up their quarterback rooms to start a season. It's so rare that like, that ends up working out the way that they want it to. I feel like that 2015 Ohio state team that won the national championship, that's like the only real like success story of like having a, a quarterback room where any of them could start. You know what I mean? And then the next, the next year as well, where there was kind of between um, when they moved Braxton Miller to receiver and they had Cardell Jones and uh, JT Barrett. But um, anyway, um, yeah, no, so I feel like this guy's going to ultimately probably win the starting job just kind of based on his body of work, but certainly wish Luke Anthony the best in his continued recovery and hope he, you know, at least contends for it. Um, but speaking of the Mountaineers, uh, he's not the only one to be joining CUSA from Morgantown. Uh, special teams uh, coach Tyler Hancock from the Mountaineers is now moving into a coordinator role with the Charlotte 49ers and Will Healy staff. Um, Eric, any additional insight you can shed there? Not much, to be honest. I mean, I think it's just kind of an interesting move here as we get kind of closer to the season begins. And I mean, I don't mean interesting as far as, you know, any type of nefar anything nefarious or peculiar. I just think it's always interesting how these moves kind of happen later in the offseason because sometimes you know, coaches just get better opportunities. And in this case, it's Charlotte's game. And I, I think, you know, if you want to take it from an on-field perspective, their special teams, obviously, you know, have been solid over the past years with John Cruz. I think the return game, Aaron McAllister contributed there last year. We'll have to see who steps up and gets the uh, return duties this year. Victor Tucker was the primary punt returner 
last year. I believe he served as the punt returner in 2019, if memory serves me correct. So clearly some talented guys there as far as the special teams are concerned. And, you know, they'll get a, a new head man there as far as the coordinating situation goes. And, and just one quick note, Joe. Uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, I, I couldn't let this go, being a native Floridian, talk about multiple quarterbacks able to start. Uh, uh, over there in Gainesville, Tim Tebow and one Cameron Jarrell Newton shared the same uh, team for a little while. So uh, I couldn't let that one go. But, yeah, uh, good game for Charlotte. That's true. Was Tebow on that team where Chris Leak was the quarterback and they won a championship? He was. Okay. That was before Cam Newton's time, though. Yeah. Yes, that was before Cam Newton's time. I remember uh, John Brantley, the year that uh, they had multiple starters, was Tebow, former uh, former Gator starter John Brantley, and Cam Newton. John Brantley famously beat out Cam Newton for that job. Well, 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 sorry, take that back. I mean, there was a, a laptop incident that, uh, that, that kind of sped up things. But nevertheless, you, you get the point. <laughs> Eric revealing publicly he was a Gator fan for a time. Whoa! That's interesting. No, 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 no. <laughs> let's, let's get that squared away. Okay. <laughs> that is the loudest I've ever heard you speak <laughs> in denying being a Gator fan. <laughs> <laughs> here you go you know, the only thing that would be more blasphemous than saying that would be implying that I was ever a bull fan <laughs> fair enough uh, let's talk about college football news is uh, projected uh, best players in CUSA here um, I feel like there's a lot of you know interesting picks but a lot of understandable ones as well uh, number one sincere McCormick completely agree um, I think he's my pick for offensive player of the year as well. Uh, number two is Rashad wisdom, which I thought was interesting. I think he's going to have a great year, but the fact that he was above uh, D'Angelo Malone and Reed Blankenship from MTSU, I thought was kind of interesting. Um, Eric, any initial impressions based on uh, CFN's list there? Listen, all due, rep- all due respect, excuse me, to CFN, Futak, who runs that, you know, publication there, but, uh, I just take a look at his, not even his top 10, his top 15. I, I see, you know, Tyler Grubbs from Tech at seven. And Tyler Grubbs had a heck of a freshman year, but to put him in your top 10 after only one year, I mean, that, you know, was something that caught my eye. Definitely think BJ Williamson, that one might be a little bit controversial, but I'm fine with that. Um, Stephen Gilmore, Grant Wells at seven, or excuse me, yeah, at seven and eight. Gilmore, yes. Grant Wells, I'm going to back off of just because of the way he ended the year. Um, then Greg Great there at 10. I am a huge Greg Great fan. Uh, I, I don't necessarily know that I'd put him at 10. I used to toss with him and Stephen Gilmore. But then again, Joe, when you look at that like 11 through 17 range, we got Marcus Williams Jr. coming in as a as a newcomer to the conference in the top 15. You got Hayes Maples, who again, a player who I really like at Southern Miss. And as I've said, and what we'll say later on this podcast, that team wasn't as bad as their record was last year, but him at 13 after, you know, just kind of a, a year or so. Uh, definitely some curious choices, but, you know, hey, that's the thing about these lifts. They are subjective. I know that I'll be putting together my top 30 players in CUSA coming up uh, as we get ready to begin the season. So, hey, you will have a chance to critique my list as well. Yeah, I mean, you're right. These lists are subjective, so there's no reason to get too riled up. But here's probably my biggest thing with this one in particular. How many names did we just mention and none of them were Victor Tucker? <laughs> A hugely agree, Joe. And you know how much of a big Victor Tucker fan I am. Right. Like, I, I mean, I feel like when you talk about NFL-ready prospects within CUSA, there's a couple, but Victor Tucker is absolutely one of them. And the fact that he's not even in the top 
10 here is nuts. He's barely in, he's number 14. He's barely in the top 15. That's Joe, wild to me. I have to share while we're on the topic of Victor Tucker, and I'll send it to you when we finish taping this podcast. I am a proud subscriber of Pro Football Focus's College Football Report. So, you know, they do the same grading for, for the pros they do for college. And with all due respect, you know, there are a lot of teams to cover in college football. And I, you know, maybe some of the, the smaller leagues, such as CUSA, might not get enough love or as much attention. But I remember the breakdown on Victor Tucker, and it said that he wasn't consistent, was inconsistent at times, talented, but inconsistent, wanted to see more consistency out of him. Um, <laughs> listen, you can, and I'm not accusing the author of that blurb of doing this. If you look at Victor Tucker's stat sheet, you can say, okay, he has 100 yards one game, 50 yards the next, such and such. You remember how the quarterback situation at Charlotte left a lot to be desired in 2018. Hassan Klu um, was the primary starter, and I believe it was Evan Sheriff's memory serves me correct. 2019 was the year that Victor Tucker's numbers ascended because Grant, um, Grant Wells, because Chris Reynolds played well. 2020, Chris Reynolds was banged up after you know week two, and Victor Tucker still put up reasonable numbers. So, sorry, that just stuck a you know a thorn in my side to call Victor Tucker inconsistent. Yeah, I think the uh, the research on that particular assessment leaves a little bit to be desired, especially when it comes to, like you mentioned, Charlotte's quarterback play. Um, so that was interesting there. <laughs> but um, I am happy to see that uh, Dion Noble cracked the top 20. I mean, I think we've, we've talked to him, or we've talked about him, rather, uh, quite a bit on this show. But I think his talent and his ability kind of gets lost with how hmm, – iffy a lot of his teammates are on the defensive side of the ball so i'm glad that at least you know his his ability is uh, getting noticed a little bit yeah i mean just look at the sheer size of him right you know six four three forty uh, a big prototypical nose tackle nose guard right there and as you mentioned you know the, the talent on on north texas defense has kind of been iffy at best you know guys like katie davis are, are certainly talented but you know maybe on the defensive line not necessarily as much help but overall the big that big thing that's hurt them as we've talked about plenty of, over this offseason it's just the amount of points they're giving up it's kind of hard to make a case i know I will give a shout out to Shane Marinelli from the FAU Owls. Now, Shane, there you go. You got your shout out. He has been a, a big uh, believer that, hey, if your defense is giving up 40 points a game, you're not really that good and or deserving of, you know, kind of that top 25 ranking. I would disagree. However, uh, there's no doubt that that does hurt Dion Noble in terms of some of these rankings. So good to see him get his shout out and respect. Or excuse me, Shane Marinelli, uh, formerly of the FAU Owls Nest. I'll get that right. For sure. Um yeah, I don't know. I mean, I feel like that's kind of like a trend in football in general. Anytime you have an offense that's as like fast paced and as pass heavy as uh, North Texas's offense is, you're all like the defensive line always gets overlooked on the other side of the ball. And I, I don't know why that is. It's just feels like that's something that's like happens a lot. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, <laughs> you can almost make the case that because they've been so pass happy and pass heavy. And of course, last year they you know performed fairly well on the ground, but you, you got to give yeah. your defense a rest. Right. And that might necessarily be to the detriment of the defense overall. So uh, I think it's a fair observation on your part. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, when it comes to defensive lines and rest, the image that like comes into my head immediately is uh, from the longest yard with uh, Joey Coco Diaz on the ground, like somebody get me a diet Coke. <laughs> well played, sir. 
Um, all right. So now that we've kind of talked about some of the, the better players in the upcoming season for CUSA here, um, I feel like that's a good transition into, you know, who is your kind of choice for offensive player and defensive player of the year, uh, Eric? You know, I, I think I, I've stated that I think Sincere McCormick is going to end up with offensive player of the year. On the defensive side of the ball, uh, I think D'Angelo Malone is going to become a two-time winner. Um, I think we, we've seen a lot of, you know, defensive backs, um, rightfully so, get a lot of attention in these preseason lists here. But I think every all the additions that Western's made over the course of this past offseason is ultimately going to energize that team. And he hasn't lost his edge, even given like kind of the step back that Western sort of took in 2020. But I think he's still an incredibly effective pass rusher. He has, you know, the body type that you want out of like that edge outside linebacker defensive and hybrid that has had a lot of success at the NFL level as of late. So I'm excited to see what he does. And I think he can repeat. Well, not repeat, but, you know, reclaim the title that he won in 2019. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And, uh, you know, I'm going to go on the limb because I, I listen, it's very easy to choose Sincere McCormick and D'Angelo Malone. And I think those are very legitimate choices. Uh, I'm going to go and kind of provide a couple intriguing sleeper choices. I know we'll talk about some teams that intrigue us in each division as well, but I'm going to provide some intriguing choices as far as Opo and Depoy, just because, like I said, McCormick and Malone, those are easy choices. And I think D'Angelo Malone's going to look to prove that he should be a day one or day two picking NFL draft and his play will reflect it. But on the defensive side, how about UAB's Chris Mole? He's a guy who's been a very steady performer in Conference USA over his entire career and is making the move, kind of that hybrid safety linebacker role. You know, certainly has the athleticism to do so. So I think he'll have a chance not only to prove himself as a tackler in CUSA, if he can, you know, rack up a couple picks, you know, maybe kind of have one of those Reed Blankenship pre-injury type years, you know, when he had an 80, 90 tackles, uh, you know, some forced fumbles, a couple interceptions, some breakups, uh, stick his name in there. Definitely a big Chris Mole fan here. And I'm going to go Homer, Devontae Price. Devontae would have rushed for almost 1,400 yards, at least had he kept his averages last year. Of course, the Panthers season was truncated. I think Devontae's in for a very, very big year. He's bulked up to uh, about 215, 220 pounds. And when you look at the numbers, if you look at his frame, he came in at about 188. So the fact that he's up to about 215 now shows that, you know, he's a much more developed player. But, Joe, his numbers between the tackles are surprisingly well for someone who began his career as a very slight, shifty back. Runs for almost seven yards per carry between the tackles. So that's something you want to definitely pay attention to. So that's my uh, intriguing pick there for Opoi and Depoy. Yeah, I mean – any running back that's going to put up that kind of average absolutely kind of deserves the attention. So, I mean, kudos to you for kind of pointing that out, but yeah, I mean, just based on the game field that he's put up and since McCormick's put up, uh, and of course, like the hype that's building around uh, Marcus Williams at Louisiana tech, I think just overall, this is going to be a really fantastic year for running backs in CUSA for all the talk that we, you know, perpetuate about, the concerning quarterback situations around COSA, a lot of teams are in really good shape in the running back department. No doubt about it. You talk about the situation there at Louisiana Tech. Can't forget about Deion Hankins. Can't forget about, you know, the stable of backs at FAU. You know, so definitely a lot of good running back situations there. Of course, Marshall will be looking to replace a great running back, but we'll see how that goes. You know, some sovereign backs out West. Can't forget about Dwayne McBride. Ran for almost 10 yards a pop at UAB. So definitely some talented backs in conference. 
Yeah. Um, and we talked about intriguing situations as well. Like it's really tough for me to pick one and even one in each division, because I feel like you could look at pretty much any team in the league and see something this year that is noteworthy, or at least for me as like a G5 football nerd. Um, but I'll, I'll try to narrow it down in the West. I am going to go with just the fact that Louisiana tech has brought in so many high power transfers they're like the Western Kentucky of the West division. If that makes sense. I think they definitely have something to prove. They have a little bit of a chip on their shoulder, just based on last year. Again, you know, they were 500, which is not bad, but for their standards, bad. And just the fact that they've gotten so close the last five, six years and haven't won the division or haven't won the conference yet. They always run into UAB. They always run into, you know, FAU or Western or whoever it might be. And you have to think that they're getting tired of that. So maybe that, you know, maybe that factors into why they're they're loading up on transfers a little bit here. Storyline that I'm looking at in the West is UTEP. And I, I know we've talked sure. about the Miami a lot, but I just genuinely think that when you take in totality all the factors entering this year, and we've talked about AD Gym Center and the situation there with Dana Dimmel and change the coordinators and so on and so forth. We just look at the talent on the field. It's been a work in progress. Even when we look at the recruiting classes, no real flashy names outside of Deion Hankins. But guess what? You know, they found some gems. Jacob Cowing, Justin Garrett, two of the top receivers in CUSA. Deion Hankins, I mentioned, you get back Quadres Wadley. Gavin Hardison is a guy who definitely has something to prove as far as can he guide that team, you know, to, to wins. Really interested to see how that plays out just because if it hits well, it's a great story that this program has seemingly come back from the dead. And well, I guess I shouldn't use that analogy because we have, you know, ODU coming off a, a year off and UAB. But uh, figuratively, figuratively speaking, excuse me, they've come back from just, you know, those struggles there. And a really good fan base at UTEP. I mean, that goes under the radar. That's a good football town. So they deserve a winner. So that'll be interesting. And um, I'll send it back to you after I get my one in the East. Middle Tennessee. We've talked a lot about the shift in offense and Bailey Hockman, the former NC State quarterback, former four-star recruit. Really think this is going to be interesting because if you go back and look at the last few years of Middle Tennessee State football, even back to the last year or two of the Brent Stocksell era, everything ran through the quarterback. And for those of you listening, you might be like, well, it's a quarterback. What do you mean? I mean, literally the entire offense ran through him in terms of engineering, whether it was the rushing attack. You know, Brent Stocksell was someone who – Certainly not the runner that Astro Harrow was, but he would put the ball on the ground. And I don't mean like fumbles. I mean, he'd use his legs to, you know, uh, kind of create offense there. They have not had a, a, a running back rush for more than 550 yards since 2016. I Tavis Mathers, uh, his 1,600 yards in 2016. So this that shift in offense, because they have the talent. You know, look at the receivers, guys like Jaron Pierce, um, um, Yusuf Ali, C.J. Windham defensively Reed Blankenship Greg great so there's talent there this could be a quick turnaround especially think about it they haven't made a bowl game in two straight years that's surprising given the run of success they had with Brett Stockstill I mean I can definitely see that I think MTSU has uh, a significant chip on their shoulder given everything that they've had to deal with the last you know four or five years or so um, and honestly with the east I mentioned it earlier but there's so many storylines that are intriguing to me um but i'm gonna stick with this one i think marshall for me is really uh intriguing based on a coach huff coming in and his star is rising very quickly in the coaching world and if he can 
do a good job here, we'll see how long they can actually hang on to him. B, we talked about Grant Wells and the potential that he showed at the start of last season and how he kind of fell off a little bit at the end. But you have to think that he is, you know, looking to uh, recuperate from that and rebuild his um, confidence and his reputation a little bit. And uh, just Marshall has a lot of the same pieces from that run that they started last year. We're talking about a team that was, you know, cruising for a, a New Year's Six berth if they hadn't fallen off as hard as they did the last three, four weeks of the season. So it's going to be, you know, how quickly can they pick those pieces up and, you know, what kind of needs to change in the formula that Doc Holliday had in place now that Coach Huff is at the reins. No, not much more that I can add to that outside of, you know, Coach Huff certainly was an excellent guest on this premiere podcast. So I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely something that you'll have to keep an eye on. As you mentioned, it, it, this is not a rebuilding job. This is one that you can kind of hit the ground running. So definitely just keep an eye on. <laughs> That's funny. You, you mentioned that, uh, you know, Coach Huff joined us a few weeks back and that reminded me I bought a new bag of M&Ms today. Uh-huh. We know he will be impressed. He wants to, you know, uh, we, we got to get the, the pepperoni rolls, pepperoni rolls too, right? Yep, exactly. Oh man. I, <laughs> yeah, I tried to make them the other day. Did not turn out good. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I, I have a long way to go in the uh, Italian department. My, uh, my Italian soon to be in-laws would be disappointed, <laughs> but uh, I digress. Um, sleeper team. You know, I, I, it's interesting kind of the definition of sleeper just because I feel like there's so many teams here that could make a run at it, especially given how weird last year was. Um, but, you know, in terms of like, for me, it's the team that like, I don't think enough people are talking about in terms of their uh, like title winning potential. And I don't, I mean, it, it feels weird to say this given the amount of success that they've had the last like four or five years, but I don't know that we're giving FAU enough credit here. Like Nikosi Perry, Willie Taggart, there's enough names on this roster who are like looking for redemption's the wrong word, but kind of looking to get back, you know, in the good graces of the football gods, so to speak. Uh, based on you know pa- bad past experiences at other schools and other places, and I feel like those big names are kind of getting overshadowed a little bit by all the other storylines that we mentioned, by Old Dominion coming back, by UTSA being really really good, the amount of transfers that are coming to Louisiana Tech and Western Kentucky, and you know FIU being you know having you know for better or worse the season that they had last year. Um, so for me, I think you know. Keep an eye on on the Owls and the amount of talent that they have on that roster. So hear me out, because I had a feeling that FAU was going to be your choice, so I decided to, you know, zig while you zagged. I'm going with the Panthers of FIU. Here's why. Um, first off, no disagreement as far as your FAU choice. I, the amount of talent they return on defense, that defense was very young last year, and they were a year ahead of schedule. They just had some quarterback issues, as we know. You know, Nick Tronti was a work in progress, J.P. Posey, so on and so forth. If Nikosi Perry can, Perry can actualize his talent uh, combined with the guys that they brought in, you know, look out. So no pushback there. FIU, I know the fans are rolling their eyes saying, all right, here's the FIU beat rider, choosing the Panthers. Hear me out. Here's why I'll make it quick. Devontae Price, as I mentioned, I believe was one of the top two or three backs, top two back in Conference USA. The defense, yes, the run defense has to improve, and 
I've been saying that for the better part of three seasons. But Everett Withers was the man that Butch Davis wanted as defensive coordinator. I'd be willing to make the argument, Joe, and this is no disrespect to former FIU defense coordinator Brent Guy, but when Coach Guy retired uh, after the 2018 season, Everett Withers was tabbed as a defensive coordinator, of course, took the job with the Giants. But Everett Withers had coached with Butch Davis in North Carolina, and at the time that Coach Davis took the FIU job. He was the head coach of Texas State. So it wasn't like he was going to leave that job to become the defensive coordinator. But it just wouldn't shock me that, you know, that was really the guy that Bush Davis had wanted all along. And I expect with such a veteran presence, someone who has a veteran defensive coordinator and has, you know, just his own ideas that Coach Davis will trust in terms of defense, I think that could play a factor in a quick turnaround. And, and, and given the fact that they've been very good against the pass, there are some solid fundamentals there. The big thing is quarterback, I do believe, given the lack of reps. I know I sound like I'm reciting a Bush Davis talking point here, but the way that FIU's practice schedule shook out, for better or worse, you can critique it however you want, say that you know all teams went through COVID, and why did FIU suffer more than other teams? The fact of the matter is they did. Um, you know, When you're shifting defensive linemen over to, to, to play offensive line a week and a half before you go play Liberty, that's not good, and it's not a recipe for, recipe for success for any quarterback. So I do believe that the quarterback play will at least be stable enough. doesn't have to be 2018, 2019 James Morgan. Can it be stable enough to get them from zero wins to a bowl game? As a sleeper, I could buy it. Okay. I mean, certainly stranger things have happened. I mean, college football is that's, – that's why we love this sport, right? Like weird things happen so often. <laughs> like, I mean, it, a, a team bouncing back from the kind of year that FIU had to get a bowl berth would be far from the strangest thing we've seen even in this conference in the last, you know, few years. No, I mean, no doubt about it. And just I'll, I'll cap it on this. I mean, when you look at Butch Davis and by no means am I, you know, uh, shilling for Butch Davis, it doesn't come off that way. You just look at his track record as a coach at the collegiate level. He hasn't really had the type of, for lack of a better word, I mean, just lack of success that he's had over the past 593 days since we are, or excuse me, 600 days at the date that we are taping this podcast since they last won a game. He hasn't had that level of like futility. Wherever the man's gone, he's won. So you have to think, given you know a full chest, a full deck to play with, that there's going to be some success in the right direction. Absolutely. I mean, which you know it, it kind of leads you to think like Butch Davis doesn't really play the transfer portal, so it's going to be interesting to see how we can continue to build up this this team that he has been working with for a number of years uh, to kind of deal with these teams that are loading up on transfer talent, which is the best transition I could come up with for our next topic of discussion. Newcomer of the year. Um, there's a lot of choices, Eric. Um, can can, can I... we both just say the same name, Joe? Can we both just say it? Come on, come on, come on. Say it, Joe. Say it. <laughs> uh, wait, hang on. When we say newcomer of the year, we're, we're, we're talking players, right? N- newcomer of the year. Newcomer to the conference. Yes. Okay. Come okay. on. Come on. We're, we're like brothers in this regard. You're going you're to say it. Oh. Oh, God, we're going to end up saying something different and then you're going to hate me. Uh, Marcus Williams. Joe, I told you. you. <laughs> Western Kentucky. Oh, Bailey Zappi. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I man. All right. I need to go pray at my little big red altar I have down here. Hang on. You of all people who actually likes that big red blob that I try to avoid. <laughs> Come on. Big red is love. Big red is life. Big red is love. Big red is life. Big red is love. Not the soda, by the way. That tastes like if you left cotton candy out in the sun for too long. 
it tastes like ass. I'll just say it. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're entitled to your Marcus Williams pick, and if that's the pick you want to remain with, that's fine. But uh, give me the guy from Western Kentucky. You know, uh, we are in agreement that we think this is going to work out well. You know, given the fact that they took Zach Kittley in addition to the talent they you know kind of transition as far as receiver position. So Bailey's happy, all in. Yeah, you know, I I've I've been sitting in the sun for a long time. We're getting AC put in the house today. Uh, so I'm going to blame that. I'm going to blame a, a minor heat stroke on me picking Marcus Williams over Bailey Zappi. Uh, <laughs> you're, you have never been more disappointed in me than right now. Uh, yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Bailey Zappi balled out at Houston Baptist. I think he's going to translate really well to, uh, the G five game, especially when the fa- you factor in, like he has like a coach he worked with. He has the same, a lot of the same receivers he worked with. Plus, like even better ones coming in uh, plus a stable offensive line unit there. Um, he's got a perfect situation at Western. It's, it's his, it's his award to lose and no disrespect to Marcus Williams. I think he has a tremendous opportunity in front of him as well. It's a matter of how quickly he can kind of fit into that offense. And now it's going to be a matter of how well he can kind of meld with the style that, uh, Keon Henry Brooks is going to bring to the table, but I digress. Bailey Zappi is absolutely going to win this award. I think. In agreement there. Glad we could bring it back around. <laughs> so that brings us to uh, Coach of the Year. Um, I'm interested to hear your take on on this one, Eric. For me, I think it's going to be uh, Trailer at UTSA. Um, just based on how quickly that program has been able to rise from. Granted, it's an extremely young program, but I think when you take into account how bad things got at the end of the Frank Wilson era, like people were pretty down in the dumps. But now, like the optimism around this program is so like thick in the air, it's going to be really fascinating to see what he can do with this roster. Um, and I think he's going to have a lot of success. So I think ultimately he is he's my pick. I think if they don't win the title, they're going to be right there. But given the amount of work that he's already put in to kind of turn that program around, um, you know, I think he's deserving of, of that recognition. In the effort of full disclosure and all transparency, that was my pick as well. But as to not be repetitive, I'm going to take a flyer on Willie Taggart, given the reasons that you mentioned, FAU being a little bit under the radar. We know how good that program has been over the past three, four years. It's not like they haven't won conference titles and conference USA East divisions. Uh, division titles. So if Willie Taggart can actualize the talent that's clearly left on that roster with the guys that he's brought in and win the East, I, I think he's going to be a shoo-in for coach of the year, especially, you know, kind of given the name recognition that he has. I, I think if FAU, if they hit the potential, look out. For sure. And finally, before we uh, wrap up the show, let's talk about uh, coach or coaches on the hot seat. I mean, for me, Take your pick between Mike Bloomgren and Dana Dimmel. Uh, both guys who have had the time to kind of implement the systems that they want. And it's not really working. I mean, you could argue UTEP is starting to turn a quarter a little bit. But I don't know. There's definitely people in the camp of how much of that is actually what Dimmel's doing and not just really good recruits coming in. You know what I mean? Um and, you know, Bloomgren, I feel like this is going to be, you know, a big year to kind of see what 
his system can really do now that he's had the time to really like recruit the types of kids that he wants and follow the archetype that he had at, at Stanford. So, but if it doesn't work, then we might see him go somewhere else. Yeah. You know, with Mike Bloomgren, I've been thinking about this over the past you know, week or so. I don't think his seat necessarily gets hot unless there's a clear regression back to the 2017, 2018 years. You know, of course, David Bailiff was a 2017 year. That was a Mike Bloomgren. But I think unless there's a clear regression, I don't think his seat gets hot. I think it gets warm if you see another four and eight type year, right? Because um, you think there's enough talent there that they should at least be around that 500 mark. Dana Dimmel, I believe is clearly on the hot seat. And again, we want to make this clear. We're not advocating for anybody to lose their job, but when your AD comes out and says, you know, Hey, we're not there yet is the direct quote uh, from Jim center, the athletic director at UTEP regarding a potential contract extension for Dana Dimmel. When the former basketball head coach was tendered a contract extension to Rodney Terry, if memory serves me correct, was the UTEP basketball coach uh, who's actually no longer there left, but nevertheless, that means your seat is hot, right? So it, it's just, and the same thing with them. They can't have a one and 11, two and 10 type year. I'm not saying UTEP has to go bowling, but they need to beat a FBS opponent um, or a legitimate because I know they beat UL Monroe last year. So a CUSA opponent would be nice. And something around the range of, listen, I, I don't know about you, Joe, but if, if they go five and seven, I think that's enough to say, okay, um, depending on how the seven losses are, of course, that's subjective, and who the losses are to. I think five and seven is enough to say, okay, you know, you finish out the rest of your contract and go from there. Um, but anything less than that, it just seems like this is not football purgatory. I mean, I know that things got bad there, you know, towards the end of the Sean Coogler era. But like I mentioned, guys like Will Hernandez just recently, it's 2015, 2016, going to the NFL. You know, um, this is this is not UTEP. I mean, UTEP competed for conference titles, you know, 10 years ago. And yeah, sure, a lot can happen. 10 years, but we've seen plenty of teams turn around quicker than this UTEP turnaround seemingly is taking. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like you can't be a D1 team in the state of Texas without being under a microscope. And for, for somewhat good reason, when you think about how rich that recruiting ground is, it's, you know, very similar to Florida in that regard. Um, and plus, like with El Paso specifically, you, you hit the nail on the head. The culture surrounding UTEP athletics is so... <laughs> is so strong and so vibrant like they you know the fact that they've had to deal with the amount of losses that they've had to deal with over the last decade is a bummer and i can't imagine that the administration is in a hurry to prolong that suffering yeah first off really quick, want to apologize for that uh note there that was a uh, you know got a quick note on the phone there i decided to check it not the smartest thing to do while taping a podcast it's not like we've been doing this for a couple of years so i apologize a b the lightning already won the stanley cup what other good news are you possibly trying to look up listen man you i don't spoiled, know spoiled sports fan you I, I don't know if you saw blues and nikita kucherov his post-game presser from last year but if you haven't seen it those of you listening and you joe Go look it up. It is just proof that if you now win a championship in Tampa, this means you suddenly have no idea how to act. Tom Brady coming off the boat a little bit drunk and Nikita Kucherov was just saying a big blank you to like all of hockey who are not in Tampa. But I digress. Um, Joe, let's do this quick math here. Charlotte had a winning season. First year under Will Healy. FIU had a quick turnaround, three straight bowl games, two straight winning years 
under Butch Davis. FAU quick turnaround under Lane Kiffin, right? Um, year one, right? If memory serves me correct, um, after the, uh, uh, I'm forgetting the head coach who was there. I'm staring at him right now, can't his name. Nevertheless, um, who else we got here at the top of our head? Jeff Trailer, UTSA, quick turnaround. Seth Luttrell, year two, was the turnaround for North Texas. Well, first yes. year with the four and eights, year two. I just named five teams off the top of my head that have had quicker turnarounds than seemingly it's taking at UTEP. And I understand it's not all things are equal. By no means am I comparing the fertile recruiting ground that is South Florida and the name that Butch Davis is in this region to UTEP. But I just gave you five teams who have turned things around quicker than it's taking the minors. So I don't blame that fan base for being rather impatient. Uh, absolutely. Hit the nail on the head. And fun fact, as I've learned, it is illegal to celebrate a, cha- a championship in Tampa with a shirt on as uh, Nikita Kucherov uh, <laughs> uh, displayed this past week. Yeah, certainly a, a big deal there, you know, and in, in here in, in this region as far as being able to celebrate championships. But we, uh, you know, on, on a bit of a, a somber note, not, not a bit, a definitely a somber note, we did want to talk about one thing as far as a member of the Conference USA community that we lost. Uh, um, Joe, I'll let you kind of go ahead and introduce that as we uh, close the show um, accordingly. Yeah, um, this obviously happened a few months ago, and, um, you know, we, we wanted to make sure that we, we talked about it here. Um, we unfortunately lost uh, longtime assistant commissioner Russell Anderson um, at the age of 50 back in April, uh, was with the league for uh, 25 years. Um, I, I never had a chance to connect with the guy personally, but there's just so many good stories of what a pleasure he was to the media covering conference USA, as well as the, the coaches and the student athletes within it. Um, but you know, Eric, I, I understand you had a, a little bit more of a, uh, a personal connection with Russ. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, had a, you know, by no means that I know him on the level that, you know, certainly the, the people in the conference office, whether it's Judy McLeod, you know, Tim McNamara, Cassie Logan, um, uh, you know, that whole crew there. Um, but I had a chance to meet Russ. The first time I met him was the Camellia Bowl after the 2019 season, uh, or the last game of the 2019 season for FIU. He was there, had a chance to get introduced to him by former FIU SID Tyson Rogers. And just Russ was just a really, really nice, kind, warm guy. Um, Listen, if you are media, uh, in any of us who are in this media realm with Conference USA, um, Russ would be willing to help you out whether it was stats or information. And, and you would see him there, you know, coordinating the, the post-game pressers with the coaches and things of that nature. And then of course, um, had a chance to catch him again later that, uh, I think it was a week later, if I'm returning correct, I'll get my, my bowl games here um, in order, covered the Gasparilla Bowl between UCF and Marshall. And of course, you know, uh, being a conference, conference USA representative, he was there as well. Um, and then also met him at media days as well. So like I mentioned, um, big loss for the CUSA community and, uh, you know, thoughts, prayers, everything with uh, Russ's family. Again, we're, you know, a few months late, but definitely want to get that in. And, and especially the people there in Frisco, as I mentioned, you know, um, Commissioner Judy McLeod, Cassie Logan, you know, Tim McNamara, everyone there at the office who, uh, who worked with him. Um, so definitely want to make sure we uh, echo that. Absolutely. Um, I mean, that's, that's kind of the great thing about G5 football and just college football in general. Like this is a, a tight space. It's a, I don't want to say it's a small space, but it's a tight space. Everybody is 
you know, for the most part, very willing to help each other out. And, and, and that just goes, you know, uh, based on what I've heard that goes double for, for Russ and, uh, the CUSA folks. So, um, rest in peace, of course. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll certainly miss you around the, uh, the Twitterverse. Um, but uh, I think that's a good place to to wrap up this episode. Uh, we'll be back with uh, some more some more happy discussion. Looking forward to uh, another great college football season. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Underdog Dynasty and uh, subscribe on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already. Check us out on Spotify. And uh, we'll be back next week with more COSA talk. And uh, check out the site every day for more G five football content. Happy football watching, everybody. <laughs>